As always, we are so incredibly appreciative and grateful for all of our Patreon supporters, especially our two newest who are at the $10 level. That is Corin K from Washuga, Washington. Hi, Corin. And Natalie K all the way in Tucson, Arizona. We appreciate you guys supporting us so much. And if you would like to hear your name on the air or get an Instagram shout out or just get our bonus content, which there is a lot of, you can go to patreon.com and just search Murder in the Rain. And Corin K and Natalie, if you guys want to hear my version, that was not very good. (laughs) It's on on Patreon. Put it on Patreon, baby. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Well, my friends, you know how life goes. Sometimes you just can't get it all done. The past three weeks have been a bit hectic for me, and I got really into a case, and I realized there's a whole ass book written about it. So, of course, I have to read that, and unfortunately, it will delay that episode slightly. But not to worry, I've pulled one of my favorite Patreon episodes for everyone to hear. This does not take place in the Pacific Northwest. It's actually a case from South Africa. So please enjoy and remember that our Patreon members get two extra episodes a month at the $5 level or higher. And I promise I'll be back with a new case for my next episode. And of course, it's a doozy. The case I'm going to cover takes place in the suburbs of Cape Town, South Africa. Cape Town, sometimes referred to as the Mother City, is the second most populous in South Africa and was once named the best place to visit in the world by the New York Times. The very first European settlement was established there in 1652 by Dutch-born Jan van Riebeek and his colleagues at the United East India Company, and since then, people of all types have started flocking to the area. South Africa hosts the largest Chinese population in all of Africa, with nearly 350,000 people who identify as Chinese. The majority of Chinese Africans reside in Johannesburg. The Chinese population in the area actually began with Chinese prisoners who had been exiled by the Dutch farmers. So Dutch farmers would often recruit Chinese laborers to help with their land. But if they got into trouble, nobody wanted that risk on their hands. So these cast-out Chinese started matriculating into Cape Town, South Africa, as early as 1660. Then, over the years, more Chinese began migrating. By the 1870s, lots of people were showing up to build their fortune in gold and diamond mines. The British gold industry heavily favored Chinese laborers because Africans preferred rebuilding the city over the dangerous mining jobs, and white laborers were just too expensive, so they started recruiting from Asia. Fast forward to the 1990s, and South Africa was plagued with Chinese gang warfare. Several gangs in the area were regularly fighting, including Boya Batong, Bisho, the Black Society, K-14s, and Table Mountain Gang. Basically all of them. 
And usually it was over highly illegal export that they stole from each other, such as shark fins, rhino horns, and ivory tusks. The violence was at a record high. In a span of a few short months in 1992, the city had seen multiple shootouts in upscale suburbs, a body of a Chinese man shot in the head and dumped at the airport, and the kidnapping of a Chinese restaurant owner for blackmail. So it was no surprise that a body discovered in the waters near the Black River Parkway on February 18, 1992, was assumed to be a victim of gang violence. The man was pretty decomposed and was wrapped in a plastic sheet. He was wearing a wedding ring, a watch, and a pair of underwear. Though his face was hard to distinguish, he appeared to be of Asian descent. Typically, the gang violence resulted in gunshot wounds, but this man had a crossbow arrow right through his head. Due to the victim having both his ring and watch on him, police immediately ruled out robbery as a motive, so gang violence seemed like the obvious choice. But little did they know that a shocking story was about to unfold. The forensic pathologist who was conducting the autopsy and attempting to identify the victim found that the body had been in the water for what appeared to be a few days. This caused some serious issues with identification. There's a picture attached to this post that's partially blocked out, likely to shield us from nightmares, but it gives you a sense of how hard it is to identify someone in this state. The skin discoloration alone makes it hard to determine the natural color of his skin. Their only hope was looking at dental records or possibly, with an experienced pathologist, identification using fingerprints. Now, this, of course, only works if the victim has a record, which a gang member likely has. In this victim's case, his epidermis was coming away from his body. Before we move along into the case, I want to take a minute to talk about fingerprinting, in particular, fingerprinting in situations that are abnormal, such as heavy decomposition, dryness, or like in this case, maceration or the separation and softening of skin due to soaking in liquid. In typical fingerprinting, friction ridge areas of the skin, such as the pads of our fingers, palms of our hands, and sometimes feet, are captured in two primary methods. Firstly, the image we normally imagine, which is covering the friction ridge surface with a thin coat of ink, which will then allow for a clear transfer of the person's unique friction skin print onto a heavy paper stock or cardboard. There's now a digital way to record fingerprints as well, where rather than using ink, the subject's friction ridge surface is scanned, creating a high-resolution image. A couple of things I found looking at the FBI website that were interesting. If a person is missing part of their finger, so if anything from the tip of their finger to the first knuckle, if anything is remaining, just a little bit of it, they will actually fingerprint it. However, if the person has an extra finger, a fingerprint isn't taken. There's only room for four fingers and a thumb. And something I found really interesting is due to old age or even the type of work you're in, you may have what is called worn fingerprints, which means the ridges aren't very defined and it can make it really hard to take fingerprints. So what they do is called milking the fingerprint, where they apply pressure from the bottom of the palm of your hand all the way up through your fingertip. And this helps raise the ridges by what I imagine is just pushing blood into the area. I don't know why you're not so excited about this. I was busy doing it. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I just thought it was so cool. Like, if you don't have a finger, I'm literally sitting here like... You're nubbin. Fingerprinting isn't always easy. A lot of times it's being done not to a criminal who has been arrested, but to a person that may have already died and needs to be identified. There are times where they've died in a very gruesome fashion or possibly have been dead for a long period of time. In some cases, different techniques need to be used to collect fingerprints. 
If the deceased is in good condition, fingerprinting isn't much different than it would be with a live person. However, the fingers need to be straightened, which can be a challenge due to rigor mortis. If a person is a bit further along in decomposition, the skin is much softer and delicate. Care is taken to gently apply ink just to the pad of the finger and oftentimes just taken on the glove of the technician rather than on a fingerprint card. Solutions concocted of up to 15% formaldehyde are used to firm the skin up a bit to allow for a better state to fingerprint. Using this method most often results in the skin being removed and set aside inside the solution for several hours. In cases where the deceased is dried or desiccated, rehydration of the skin is necessary. Typically, hands and feet will be completely removed so that they can be soaked in a chemical rehydration concoction made with a silicone agent. If the body has been submerged in water for long periods of time, the outer layers of the skin or epidermis separates from the lower layers of the skin, the dermis. Sometimes it's not damaged and can be wiped with alcohol and printed as normal. But in others, like that of our victim found in the river, the skin of the hand can be completely degloved or removed in one piece. Sometimes the skin stays pretty intact, making the prints a little bit easier, but oftentimes the skin takes on so much water that it becomes much larger than normal, up to 33% larger than when we're alive. This can actually still be printed and searched in the database, but it may not yield a result, so they would just set it aside, let it dry, and try it again. Whether the prints are scanned digitally or taken with ink and paper, they do end up being scanned into an Automated Fingerprint Information System, or APHIS. APHIS allows state law enforcement agencies to compare prints collected against known prints in the system. There's also an integrated APHIS, which is managed by the FBI. States and countries often open up their own APHIS systems to other agencies because there's not just one database, which was news to me. Yeah. I just assumed it's like one managed by the FBI that state and countries can kind of apply to get into. Like that every case we're always like, wouldn't it make more sense to have? There's just so many rules. And, you know, you look at something like the EU and countries pulling out of it and it kind of makes sense that it's a little bit harder to yeah. be so integrated. But I think we're making our way that way. And they do work really well together. Especially with everything being digitalized. It's a lot easier to share stuff as but also a to... lot easier to hack. So that's probably a safety thing. Yeah, that too. Keeping it in different servers in different countries. As I mentioned, our victim was experiencing skin slippage where the epidermis detaches from the dermis. This was actually really good for identification. The pathologist literally put the victim's hand skin over his own hand like a skin glove and was able to take fingerprints. What I thought was really crazy in the photos is he's not even wearing a glove. No. It's just and this legit was like skin the, on skin. And this was the first documented use of this, right? Yep. And I and just wrote that. It's the first time anyone's ever put it on over their hand to, to be fingerprint. able to fingerprint. I believe they have taken it off and fingerprinted it. Yeah. But this was like a legitimate skin glove. Yeah. He's like, wait. This degloved is literally a glove. Yeah. And, and it that fit was perfectly jarring. like Cinderella. And thanks to Magellan for all the photos because then they did show the picture wow. of this doctor who and was we like, will have them for you. And his like sweet little South African accent or so, or he had he was from somewhere else. Uh yeah, he might have been German or uh, Yeah, and he's European. like, and so I just put it on my hand and <laughs> took the fingerprints. And it's like and he, he didn't like, even want your, uh, a glove I imagine on he's told the story 500 oh my times, God, but he's still just story. as delighted yes. with it. 
So they de- they deglove him. They put it on. They fingerprint. Forty five minutes. Bam. They have a match. And his name was Victor Graham Chatburn from Cryfontaine, a northern suburb in western Cape Town. Though Chatburn had a record for theft, thus why his prints were in the system, this was definitely not a Chinese gang member. Right away, police began to consider who in Graham's life would have killed him and began interviewing everyone close to him, starting with his wife. Louisa Chatburn, who was 17 years younger than Graham, had previously been married to a man named Fanny Dutois. The pair got together when Louisa was still in school. They had two daughters and were married for several years. But in 1989, Dutois committed suicide using a gun owned by Louisa. Two days after the suicide death of her first husband, she met the twice-divorced father of five, Graham Chatburn, through her church. Their relationship developed like a summer romance in the Big Brother house. I'm talking zero to 60, and the two were married within four months of meeting. This was in December of 1989. Louisa's newlywed happiness faded as she realized that the financial security she so desperately wanted wasn't available when Graham lost his job. Louisa left Graham, filed for divorce in 1991. Graham tried to win her back, and eventually he succeeded. Later that year, they were actually remarried. It's just jarring that they got together after four days that her husband killed himself. It's Uh, not like... Two. They met and got right together. So it's like, it's not... It's not a judgment of, oh, they got together so fast, but it's just, okay, if you were happily married... And he just died. I mean, you haven't even buried him. Yeah. You're either in such crisis mode that your brain is not working correctly and you're Mm -hmm. just grabbing the next thing for comfort. Or you might be sociopathic and you're like, oh, who? Who died? Some people have theorized. So Graham had been recently divorced again. And his I think his daughter even said he was severely depressed. He Mm. really missed being married, uh, wasn't happy. So he was susceptible to a younger, beautiful woman, beautiful in quotes, <laughs> wanting his attention, you know? And yeah. from her perspective, I agree. It's either going to be you're deep in in grief and yeah. you don't know what's going on. You're just looking for comfort. Or, yeah, perhaps there's something severely wrong with you and you're actually on the hunt like a black widow or something. I wonder which one it will be. I wonder. Hmm. When police contacted Graham's family to notify them of what they've learned, his wife, Louisa Chatburn, told them that her husband had left the home at 6 a.m. on February 16th to go for a walk. He didn't return, so she filed a missing person report. There had indeed been a pervasive search for Graham in progress, with many of his family members involved. She said that when he left, he had been fully dressed. This would mean that his clothes would likely be somewhere between his house and the river where he was found but no item was ever recovered. Investigators questioned the story that the wife was giving, so they kept digging. They learned that Graham often slept in his underwear. This indicated that it was highly likely he had been asleep when he was shot with the crossbow, as his body was found only wearing underwear. A discarded crossbow was found hidden in the Crawley-Fontaine BMX track. This is roughly five miles away from the Chatburn residence. Within a week, Louisa was arrested for murder. She quickly offered up what happened. She confessed that her husband had asked her to buy a crossbow and that she did and they stored it in their attic. Early in the morning of the 16th, she claims to have walked into the kitchen to find her husband holding the crossbow with a very strange look on his face. 
She asked him to put it down, and when he didn't, she tried to take it from him, which resulted in an accidental shot to his head. She then went on to say that she was panicked, and rather than call for help, she undressed him, wrapped his body up, and dragged him out to her car where she loaded him and the crossbow in, drove to the river, and dumped his body. She claims to have washed the blood from the kitchen and the clothing. This resulted in the officer bringing in a forensics team to search the home for blood. They did not find blood in the kitchen. However, they did find blood in the bed, solidifying their theory that Graham was shot while he slept. Do you know what else they found? What? Paperwork in the back seat of their car. Paperwork that was insurance policy paperwork, which detailed Graham's life insurance was $125,000. That was a lot of money at the time, and that was a clear motive right there. I like, too, in the show that we watched that she said her whole concern, like the reason that she hid his body was because her husband had died of suicide. Her first husband. Oh, like and she was like immediately. I knew immediately they'd be looking at me. So you hid the body and got rid of the weapon and didn't record anything, ma'am. Now, around this time, Louisa's story changes. Now her and her lawyer make the claim that she killed Graham not by accident, but on purpose because he drove her to do it with his repeated sexual abuse. Apparently, he made demands of her that were so demeaning and outlandish that it had driven her to kill him to protect herself. Now, I am someone who believes victims, but in this particular case, this seems like a big reach. There is no evidence that Graham was ever sexually abusive of anyone in his entire life. In the documentary Crossbow Killer, they talk about how Louisa made claims that he regularly abused her with a vibrator. The police made a comment that if you were sexually abused with a particular object and you were driven to kill someone due to that abuse, don't you think you would have gotten rid of the item that caused the abuse as well? Because when they showed up at the house, it was right there on a charger in the bedroom. Not that that seals the case because, you know, I'm sure victims legitimate victims well and i'd like to hear it too because i agree with you it's like i don't know how anyone's going to react when they're a victim of something but it just seems a little odd that you're to go to such an extent to kill someone get rid of their body get rid of the crossbow and not like throw in the the abuse object with it or or even just like set it aside somewhere to be like here's proof because maybe there's something on it that can show that it was used violently or something but yeah that's Mm -hmm. questionable Louisa Chatburn goes on trial in October of 1992. At the trial, everyone was shocked to learn that Graham Chatburn had been alive when he was thrown into the river. He had been shot in the head, yes, but it was not in an area that would have caused an immediate death. And this does explain why his decomposition was so severe. The pathologist said, if you're alive and breathing in the water, I don't know, you know, I don't know the science behind it, but your skin is likely going to take on a little more water and he may have swallowed some, getting bacteria in his body. Bacteria would be right. That's probably more more of the reason why he was so decomposed. But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I forgot about that. That's so awful to be. I hope he was unconscious and just. Or like a vegetative state yeah. that he just didn't wasn't aware of anything. But that would would have been shocking to hear. I think I don't know if the family maybe knew, but then the whole world knows. Yeah. And you're just thinking, what kind of monster would do that? It's yeah. one thing to kill someone out of self defense. It's another to make them suffer. Right.
Throughout the proceedings, everyone learned of Louisa's previous husband's now suspicious suicide. The details around her purchasing a crossbow, the blood found in the bed, Graham's proclivity of sleeping in his underwear, which happens to be what he was found wearing when his body was recovered. Needless to say, the state had a pretty solid case against Louisa. The argument on Louisa's side was still that the sexual abuse drove her to murder, but the state prosecution had other ideas. You see, they had done a lot of research, and at everyone's disposal is the actual murder weapon, a crossbow. Anyone that knows anything about crossbows knows that it's a very difficult weapon to load. My dad and sister both enjoy crossbow hunting. I don't know why. And they had to go buy them and they ask your height and weight because cocking the arrow into place can be challenging if it's not the appropriate size for you. In fact, this particular crossbow that killed Graham was like picking up 185 pounds. Now, I'm not sure if anyone's mind has gone to this yet, but it's theorized that she did not load the crossbow herself. It was either preloaded, which is a very weird way to store a weapon, or someone loaded it for her. At Louisa's side for the entire trial was a pastor by the name of Gerard Erasmus. He was so unwaveringly supportive that people began to assume that the pair had been having an affair, and he was potentially the one who loaded the crossbow for her. Now, there was no physical evidence directly indicating that he had any involvement. But a woman named Elizabeth Cooper, a friend of his, testified that she had, in fact, overheard Louisa and Gerard speaking to each other about his role in the murder and that he was there in the bathroom while she killed her husband. The two, of course, denied being close before the murder occurred and they have denied the affair altogether because both were obviously married. Erasmus's wife did provide an alibi for her husband for the time of the murder, so he was never prosecuted. A month after the trial began, Louisa was sentenced to 25 years for the murder of Victor Graham Chatburn. The court also agreed that while she killed him, she had an accomplice. Her motive was financially driven, but there is also evidence that there was a possible love triangle to add to the motive. The court did not believe that Louisa was driven to murder due to sexual abuse. A few months after Louisa's trial, Erasmus still tried to continue this narrative by bringing a teenage girl with him to meet a reporter. He told the reporter that Graham Chatburn had other victims and this girl was one of them. He claimed their entire family knew about this and was keeping it a secret. Now, the Chatburn family has never indicated that any of these claims are valid and Erasmus has since died in the years since the trial. So the question is to me, was this guy a man in love and doing anything to save the woman of his dreams or did she manipulate him? Was he not involved and she just fed this story to him and he was doing, as a pastor, anything he could to get her out of prison? That's a good... I don't know. I I, I think he helped her. I, I, think, I think so, he too, did. because in... I mean, granted, it's like movies and whatever, but you think of maybe a pastor who has lived a more sheltered life or not, you know, done things and you have this woman who is you know, just she a was ball like, of sex is yeah. how she's described. And she loved doing like glamour shots and always had the hair done. I and can't the wait for you guys done. to oh see my the photo. Y'all, <laughs> she thought a lot of herself and you're like, wow, I could I wish you could bottle that self-esteem. <laughs> but, you know, it's like that allure and that like danger and sexuality and all of that from this pastor that maybe has never been exposed to anything mm -hmm. like that. And 
next thing you know, you're involved. Well, I didn't do anything. I just lifted a body or I didn't do anything. I just, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I just cocked a, a thing. I didn't do anything. Um, that to me kind of makes more sense than just suddenly yeah. being enraptured by her and like, oh, I'll be by her side through everything. I agree. Louisa was eventually up for parole and she had a very good chance of getting out. While in prison, Louisa did well. She received an award for being a model prisoner. Her fellow prisoners even looked up to her as a role model. In the parole meeting, they asked her who helped her kill him because everyone knows what the court says goes. So when you go up for parole, they ask you to basically tell them what you did. Right. Ask for give you, you know, have remorse. Mm -hmm. Say what you did. Move on with your life. Right. So they gave her that opportunity. They're like, who helped you? And she said, I did it alone. So the family was mad. The parole board. I don't know how they they let her get away with that. No. Oh, okay. Okay, I accept it. But the family's like, no, 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 no. The court has deemed this a murder, but she had an accomplice. And she's not telling you that. She's continuing to lie. So she continued to lie. However, with her fantastic record, she was released in September of 2007. And she would embark on a life outside prison, but on a strict parole until November 2015, which actually is pretty decent. I have not really seen a case where the parole is longer than three years. Yeah. I don't know if we do we do that in the U.S. Oh, yeah, we do. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting about that is she was required to have a regular meeting twice a year with the parole board so that they could check up on her. And also she had to see a psychologist regularly for the first two years of that parole. She was also regularly working with the pastors in the restorative justice program, an organization that tries to connect victims with the perpetrators to kind of air things out, move on with your life and, and get some redemption. In 2015, just one month after her parole ended, she married a man named Hein Bruin. The pair met through a mutual friend while she was in prison. So this man and her are writing. He eventually comes to to meet her in prison and it just blossoms. And when she gets out, they continue dating and they get married. Hein died on March 14th, 2017, after two years of marriage. And I know you're all thinking it. But we do think the death was natural. He was diagnosed with cancer in the fall of 2016. Now, one of the things I didn't bring up on this in this case that I thought was really cool in the documentary was the daughter's involvement. Mm -hmm. So Jennifer Chatburn, Graham's daughter, he lived with her when he started dating Louisa. So the two of them, he had other kids, but the two of them shared a house. So she had a lot to say. She provided a lot of evidence Things like Louisa saying, uh, oh, I got the crossbow for Christmas. That was one of her arguments. Oh, I forgot about that. And Louisa said, "Uh, no, 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 no. Christmas was a huge deal here and there was never a crossbow under our tree. Yeah. So she was able to kind of provide this external view of all of these things that happened for the duration of the marriage. But also, I found it really touching, her involvement with the restorative justice yeah. program. Mm-hmm. Did you want to maybe share kind of yeah, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it was really great to see because, you know, the, it was so shocking to the family that even she was like, wait, murdered? What? Like, you know, she didn't expect that. And and she sided with the, the stepmom for a while. She mm-hmm. said there's no way she could have done this. Yeah. And, um, yeah, she just had this really, she presented herself with one of the, as being one of those people with, that energy you just want to be around, like yeah. passionate, but composed. Yeah. And that they 
she was part of pushing for the restorative justice, where it, which is where you have a pastor and the victim or the family of, of the victim and then the perpetrator and you sit and you kind of talk it out. You know, and the pastor right. was talking about how it kind of provides a form of closure. You get to ask those questions you normally wouldn't get to. And, and then, it's a safe space because they're not yeah. in court. They're not going up before a judge and being, you know, getting a sentence added to because of this. It's exactly. a perfect opportunity to tell the truth. Yeah, it's just a one-on-one personal interaction. And yeah, now she, the daughter goes to prisons and she shares her story of losing her dad. She said she always starts with um, a regular picture, if you will, from I think either... I think it was from their wedding. Yeah. And just be like, here's my dad, happy guy. Like, we were so close. Now look at and, him. Yeah. And then she cuts to the really horrific, bloated picture from the river. And she's like, and this is what I was left with. And she talks to these really hardened criminals and says, this is, you know, you think you're just, oh, I did this action and I have the the uh, consequence of it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, no, no. You have your consequence. Right. Here's my consequence that I have to live with. So it's really cool to see. She's not doing it even... It, it was never like shameful. No, she it's ends truly up a way to them. help these people. Yeah, it was so beautiful to see in the it's show. It's selfless. Yeah. And I, and I think that in the end, it makes her feel better about her own loss. Yeah, she was saying how it's like I'm, I've turned it into something good. And right. she's like, I look these killers in the eyes mm-hmm. and I hug them. And... Because she didn't get that from her stepmom. Yeah. Her stepmom refused to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. So by doing that for other families, she knows those people can move on with their lives a little more easily than she could have. Yeah. Yeah. And then she like went and got a degree in like yeah. criminal justice. Or so. so now she's like, oh, I get how that lady is. That's why she lied to us. She's trash. Whatever. Yeah. She thought maybe it would help me understand the situation a little more if yeah. I can get the mindset of the criminal. Yeah. And I just thought that was a really unique and thoughtful way to tackle a horrible situation. Mm-hmm. And really beautiful stuff. To it come was. From it was something touching. So ugly. I definitely teared up a little bit when we <laughs> watched it but I highly recommend it I thought it was beautiful yeah but I I of course it can't be an Emily episode without more facts so I have some really some more interesting notes about fingerprinting and how it ties into my life so firstly fingerprinting was invented by a Scottish doctor named Henry Falds Henry was born in 1843 in Scotland he went to college, became a physician. He was a medical missionary and did a bunch of really amazing things. He did this medical mission to Japan and introduced antiseptic to Japanese surgeons. So they were like doing surgery without antiseptic. And he's like, hey, this could actually make people stay alive. Wow. <laughs> Let's try this. So then he also helped to um, found a society for the blind there and set up like lifeguard stations along the canals just to help like decrease the number of drownings. Like this guy was balls to the yeah, wall. Why haven't we heard about this guy? Uh, well, it, yeah, well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> so get this. He goes with a friend, an archaeologist named Edward Morse to a dig where they're examining clay fragments. And as he's looking at the clay, he's noticing his own fingerprints. And he's like, wait a minute, my fingerprints are different than my friends. And none of us have the same as our other friend. And he realizes they're all different. So legend or the internet has it that after this happens, he has a break in at his hospital where he works and the police arrest one of his uh, employees. Now he's adamant. There's no way this person had done this. So he goes in and he fingerprints his hospital and shows them that the fingerprint of the person who broke in is different than his employee. And the police were like, wow, this guy is believable. They end up letting the employee go. So then he kind of like, wow, this could work like we could solve crime with this. 
So in the end, he basically just believed you can identify a person by their fingerprint. And he wanted to promote this idea to other people. So he tried to get support from Charles Darwin, who for some reason I think is like in a different year altogether than this guy. Right. It seems like so much older, <laughs> but they're, you know, they're peers at this point. Yeah. And Darwin's like, no, thanks. I don't want to get involved. I'm really into birds. <laughs> so <laughs> I got this turtle thing going on right now. I can't. But what he does is he sends the info to his friend, Francis Galton, who took the idea to the Anthropological Society of London. Now you're thinking, oh, awesome. That's really great. No, he takes the idea for himself. Pulls a uh tesla yeah and so what's his name the thing is falds had published an article in the scientific in the scientific journal nature in 1880 so he had proof that he's the one that invented it but falds he's the one that gets credited for years to come so then let me bring you to the now i'm at dinner with my former ceo and uh he mentions how his great grandfather won Kosovic, one, one, no, Vusatich Kosovic invented using fingerprints and crime. And I was like, no way, no. that's not possible. So I fact checked it and it's true. But he credit his great grandfather credits the guy that stole the idea as inventing it. And he was the first person to use it in a criminal investigation and actually catch a criminal by their fingerprint. And it was a woman. And I plan to do this case for Francisca Rojas. I will cover it in probably the next Patreon or two How from now. Cool. But I thought, whoa. And of course, he won my my liking of him at that moment. Oh, I'm like, sure. you're so cool. You come from this <laughs> guy that used it in a criminal case. So let me try to get this name right. Juan Vucetich Kovacevic was his name at the time. And he was a, a police officer. And he thought, OK, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to start taking criminal fingerprints. Lo and behold, it worked. He used it for the oh, first time in a crime scene. I would love to see the prints that were used with the hospital break in. Like the. Very oh, my first, gosh. I know. Like, how did they even see it? Well, or and like, I don't know. You know, it's not like you have a microscope. I don't know if that's true, though. So that was a, a Wikipedia find and that I'm continuing to go down this finger. I hope it is. Hole. I like him just being like, nope, this one line is different. Or just he's so adamant that he just wants somebody to listen to him. And maybe yeah. they were just like, this guy's annoying. Like, let's just <laughs> let him have his employee. If he's willing to vouch for him, we don't care. Yeah. What was he in there stealing anyway? I don't know. Vicodin. <laughs> I don't think that was invented yet. <laughs> Whatever. 1800s Vic cocaine. But I just thought, what a crazy way to kind of. The story comes back yeah. around that my CEO it all comes of a tech back to company, Emily. Oh, the whole world revolves <laughs> around me. I just thought, what a claim that to fame cool. that that his family. I mean, they were very prominent from Croatia. Wow. But they changed their name. So at first oh. I was like, oh, he's full of it. But then I realized <laughs> it is the same name. They just, you know, you change it when you migrate to different countries. And they had migrated. That's really cool. Yeah. So there's a little bit of history, a little bit of a dramatic case. I like that one. That so, is a good one. Thank you, Magellan TV. We have many more. And we're not like even that. saying that to blow smoke. We're not even like, yeah, Magellan, it's amazing. It was very entertaining. We well, all just sat there and were First of to all, it. the app is nice. It yeah. works really well when there's a million and one streaming things you can pick. I thought theirs was very nice. Yeah. Second, it's really easy to find a genre if you like. It's nice to just say, oh, true crime. Mm -hmm. Cool. And then it's all there. Yeah.
I have some exciting news to share. You know how you'll see most, most. <laughs> Solid start. Solid start. Very, very professional. I have professional. some news to share. You know how you see most. Goodbye. Episode words. over. <laughs> hey, you, hey, you fuck off right now. Rebeak. 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 Okay, that sounds right. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, but it it's does. It's Dutch. <clears throat> What? Hey guys. Hi. You sounded like a frog. Who? Her or me? You said Ribic. Ribic. Oh. Ribic. <laughs> Sorry that took so long to get to. No, it's fine. Comedy isn't about timing. So. <laughs> Just, you know, tomorrow call us and let us know what other jokes you came up with. Oh, oh shit. She burned you. She never burns you. That was great. <laughs> yeah, you little idiot. <laughs> In 1652, by Dutch-born Jan van Riebeek. Fuck. Riebeek. Riebeek. James Van de Beek. Yeah, that's helpful. Sorry, one more time. The very first European settlement. Mm-hmm, nope. Three more times. I swear I practiced this. <laughs> but little did they know that the shock. Bah. Uh, I'd like you to save that cut up. <laughs> Don't you want a real girl with real slip ups to read this for you? Just a reel of me. Nah. (laughs) But then, oh my God, I have this one video that just keeps going viral. Oh, it's so hard to be me. But uh, (laughs) anyone that knows anything about crossbows knows that it's a difficult weapon. Oh, dear God. It's a difficult weapon. To shoot somebody. What is happening? Just do the whole story like that. <laughs> uh, Nova Scotia. Some people just sound Canadian, whereas other people Look you do England. not understand them. England has them. like 45 Oh, yeah. Accents. It's based on the kind of... Oi, I'm from that street over there. Oh, I'm from that street there. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. and take my boss. <laughs> <laughs>